<laughs> There's no such thing as a rainbow. <laughs> Where is the rainbow? This is a much used metaphor in Dharma teachings to point to the insubstantial nature of experience. Where is the rainbow? Is there such a thing as a rainbow? Or is it just a confluence of conditions seen from a particular vantage point? And how much of our experience, if we really pay attention, is like that? Pay attention to a thought. Where is it? It seems so real, so solid, so substantial, so powerful at times, yet so elusive and ephemeral. We talk a lot about mind. Where is the mind? What is the mind? Can you put your finger on it and say, that's mind? Even more so with awareness, that which reveals and illuminates everything. Where is awareness? Even more subtle than a rainbow, does it have a color? Does it have a shape? Does it have a location? A size? Volume? But it's present. Awareness is here. Otherwise, we would not be cognizant. But it's also unfindable. We can't say it's here. If I say, bring awareness to your left foot suddenly left foot comes into cognizance. So it's kind of perfect that the rainbow revealed itself tonight because going back to that original question, what are we really doing here? If I could retitle my, the subtitle of my book, Awake in the Wild, I would retitle it as Mindfulness in Nature as a Path of Insight. Because for me, one of the beauty, beauties and uh, power of being outdoors is of the illuminating wisdom that we can uh, touch into or discover or experience very in our bones, in the very visceral, organic, natural, accessible way, including the ephemerality of rainbows that are so beautiful and so mysterious and so ephemeral. So one of the things that interests me most is uh, creating the conditions like these retreats for us to have a very, um, you know, contactful, subtle, insightful uh, relationship with life, with ourselves, with experience. And so we bring these, these, these components together, silence, stillness, unplugging, cultivating mindful awareness, immersing ourselves in the wild, doing so in the context of community. Right? These are all the elements of this experience and then 
listening to teaching, wisdom teachings, that, you know, over time we start to be touched and have insights and illuminations and understandings about experience and nature and ourselves and life and reality that can be very profound, very subtle and profound. And they often happen in the midst of experience. As you're walking or lying down on the earth or putting your hand in the stream or watching the fluttering of the aspen leaves or listening to the silence at night or gazing at the night sky. We can, something gets touched and often awakens in us. So I want to speak a little tonight of some of those qualities or insights or revelations. And the first and most obvious is the intimacy with change, the intimacy with transience, intimacy with the changing nature of experience all around us, every moment. You know, when we're in these rooms, it's, there's, more, there's more stasis, except in our own inner experience. When we go outside, we're you know, part of that living, breathing, changing reality that is life. Nothing but change. Look at the weather. <laughs> it's cloudy, it's dull, it's dark, and then the sun comes and there's rainbows and then it rains and then the sun comes and it's dark. Just this movement of life just pulsing, teeming, natural, organic, fluid, nothing that's static. And so when we immerse ourselves in it over time, it just, it's like going, it's like bathing in in water or something. It just becomes more part of our fabric, that knowing. It's not just an idea, right? We all know change is happening all the time, and we look in the mirror and it's certainly happening. <laughs> but to feel it very viscerally you know, in the light and the temperature and the sounds and the breeze and, you know, everything is in flux. And of course, if you come to the same piece of land where you live in your garden and the hills or the forest near you and I come here enough to see the, the changing nature of the landscape. And it's very potent. It can help wake us up to the dream that we live in sometimes that that's not really the case. And so I th- what I think the fruit of that understanding is that we, things wash off or wash through us easier, more lighter. We just know whatever difficulty and, and struggle and stress we're in, there's some knowing it's moving. It doesn't stick around forever. Nor does the good stuff. And we hold that lighter too. Just, oh yeah, it's beautiful. And then, oh, it's raining. Oh, what a surprise. Oh, and now I'm cold. Oh, and that's life. So I want to share one of my first, this is my first Dharma reading that I, that a friend gave me when I was first moved into a monastery when I was about 20. And it's from a great Zen master, Kukai, founder of a Zen lineage and also who took to the mountains later in life. You ask me why I entered the mountain deep and cold, awesome, surrounded by steep peaks and grotesque rocks, a place that is painful to climb and difficult to descend, wherein reside the gods of the mountain and the spirits of the trees. 
Have you not seen, oh, have you not seen the peach and plum blossoms in the royal garden? They will be in full bloom, pink and fragrant, now opening in April showers and falling in spring gales, flying high and low all over the garden, the petals scatter. Have you not seen, oh, have you not seen the water gushing up in the divine spring of the garden? No sooner does it arise that it flows away forever. Thousands of shining lines flow as they come forth, flowing and flowing into an unfathomable abyss. Turning and whirling again, they flow on forever. No one knows where they will stop. Have you not seen, oh have you not seen, the billions who have lived in China and Japan? None have been immortal from time immemorial. Ancient sage kings or tyrants, good subjects or bad, fair ladies or homely, who could enjoy eternal youth? Noble men and lowly alike without exception die away. They have all died reduced to dust and ashes. The singing halls and dancing stages have become the abode of foxes. Transient as dreams, bubbles, lightning, all are perpetual travelers. Have you not seen, oh, have you not seen that this has been mankind's fate? How can you alone live forever? Thinking of this, my heart always feels torn. You too are like the sun going down in the western mountains, or a living corpse whose span of life is nearly over. Futile would be my stay in the capital. Away, away I must go, I must not stay there. Release me, for I shall be master of the great void. I am never tired of watching the pine trees and rocks at Mount Koya, the limpid stream of the mountain, is the source of my inexhaustible joy. Discard pride and earthly gains. Do not be scorched in the burning house, the triple world. Discipline and meditation in the woods alone lets us enter the eternal realm. So something very beautiful and sober about that. That he's... And this deep understanding of the fragility of life and uh, preciousness. And what do we do with that time? And so he chooses to go to the mountains. Difficult to, <coughs> d- difficult to ascend. And be touched by you know, what touches us when we're in the wild. There is something, there's a, there's a beautiful sobriety about nature. There's nothing hidden, and it's, it's harsh in its beauty, in its uncompromisingness. So, in, in line with that understanding, you know, the, another thing that we encounter all around, all the time, if we pay attention to, is death. Right? You look outside. Right? You look outside right now. There's that beautiful uh, old ponderosa tree that's been standing ever since I've been coming, for, which is almost 24 years now. I keep waiting for it to fall. <laughs> it's the abode of many, many bird nests. But you will look around, we find skulls and bones and dead grasses and old trees and those beautiful trees that have become lines in the forest. And they're just exquisite reminders of the changing nature. And death comes to all things, however old and beautiful and aged. That is part of the cycle. And there's something natural about it. You know, sadly in our culture, we've made death mostly a problem and a mistake of, of the medical system. And we come out here and we see that everything, you know, even every living thing you look at, the trees, the flowers, the grasses, they're both, you know, if you, the, you'll see facets of birth and growth and regeneration and decay and death in the same stalk, in the same limb, in the same tree. And there's something about the having that wash over and over. So again, it, 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 there's a sobriety in the, in the knowing, in the understanding. 
Uh, this too is how it is. This is the nature of things. Dharma means the natural laws of things, okay? including the cycle of birth and death. But it's not all death. It's not all decay and misery and grimness. Right? It's also life and beauty and spring and flowers and birds nesting and, and chicks feeding. and right? It's this, the whole cycle. So to notice where we fixate. Do we, know, do we only fixate on the blooming daisies or do we also take in the decaying trees? Both have their place and their value and their beauty. And so there's a poignancy that comes. I often find when, when, there's, when I have a, a, um, a certain presence of attention, of awareness, there's just a poignancy with the cycles. Even seeing the rainbow and its beauty and its glory and its ephemerality, it just, it's ungraspable. It's gonna, it doesn't last for more than a few minutes. How sweet, and then there it goes. Everything passes, such is the way of things. I remember I shared this story in relationship to this um, theme when I was, times I'd been in Alaska and being around the salmon, salmon runs. How many people have been up in Alaska when the salmon are running back to the, the breeding grounds, the spawning grounds? It's incredibly moving phenomena. You know, millions and millions, tens of millions of fish. The whole ocean is jumping back to its source. After three years of cycling around the Pacific, this mass of life marching towards its death, marching towards procreation and death and sacrifice and renewal. It's just so profound and beautiful and, and, and sobering, that cycle of life. And also this is a certain... It feels like there's a certain selfless sacrifice in that march of the salmon. It's very beautiful. So we see change, we see death, and of course that reminds us of our own mortality. We, we contemplate death in this practice, in these teachings, not as a morbid exercise, but as a reminder to, to wake up to not go to sleep, to make the most of this precious time. Because none of us know, and we know, I'm sure we all know many people who've passed, who we've loved dearly, who maybe were quite young in years. We just don't know. This might be our last time at Valacitos. We don't know. I hope it's not, but it could be. So what do we do with that? We make the most of this. Not think, oh, I'll come back next year, I'll do that, you know, I'll be present next year, and I'll, you know, go back to my book, you know, my legal book, you know, go back to my cabin. No, we make the most of it. We, you know, we, we love, love it in its, in its fleetingness. At least that's the intention. And what else do we see when we come outdoors? We uh, have a different perspective on time. Right? We shift. Hopefully most of you have left your clocks and whatever timepieces in your phone or whatever, you put them away. And, and we get to feel a different rhythm. You know, not clock time, but more than that, natural rhythm time, non-linear time. You know, we live with such time scarcity, and I think the minutes and hours and the, and the registering of that doesn't help. I know when I put my, my time pieces aside, there's a certain space opens up. And I see how relative time is, how elastic it is. These stones from the riverbed, from the Balacitos River, um, so I hear a 1.2 billion years old. <laughs> so if you're worrying about getting old, it's all relative. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of astounding. I don't know how they know that, but someone figured it out. I guess carbon something, carbon dating. Or just knowing that particular strata of rock it came from. 
it's just a vast expanse of time, you know, we, being in the southwest and the, going, going down the canyons, the Green River or Colorado or wherever, and just being surrounded by these hundreds of millions of year old rock. It's very moving. And it quietens the mind because the mind can't conceive of that expanse of time. But at the same time, it it's also seems to do something healthy to our psyche in the same way that we look up at the night sky and it's vast and we're infinitesimally microscopic and yet it has something it, 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 it moves something in us in, in a way that's very you know, the words don't really live up to that you know again it feels it feels to me sobering there's a poignancy to knowing the vastness knowing the timelessness <coughs> knowing one's place as a flicker of a speck of a mote of dust we get some perspective on our dramas at times on the pettiness of our mind not to judge that but just to see the 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 needless grip so another thing we can access is um, the this is for the critics in the room um, we can we can sense into the the perfectly imperfect display of life. Right? The, the, the criteria of perfection and imperfection don't seem to apply when we go outside. You might look in the mirror, we have a lot of ideas about what's perfect and what's imperfect, or other people, or our work, or all kinds of things. But when we go outside, again, to a world that's both not using that criteria for judgment, but also... Um, we look at nature, I think for the most part, without that lens of perfectionism. I know a lot of people talk about feeling a relief from the critic because they feel they're not being judged by the natural world. Maybe the odd predator who's assessing whether you're worth you know, taking out or not, you know, or mosquito, whether you're tasty enough. You know. But for the most part, there's a there's a sense of acceptance that arises, a sense of, you know, when we, when we look at things, when we look at trees and rocks and crags and you know, grassy meadows that have turned brown, we don't tend to judge that old decaying tree that's still standing, that's barely got any limbs left. Right? We don't go... Looking a little shabby there. <laughs> Tidy up. We'll just prune you a little bit. Just paint some of that messy stuff in the holes. And no, we just go. Oh, wow! How beautiful in its in its in its isness, in its you know just its beingness. It's it's you know it's perfectly imperfect nature. And I think that rubs off on us. We see that life is, just like the aspen trees, they're all pockmarked with the, the antler rubbings, and it creates this sort of gnarly beauty. You know, if you look closely, that's its scarred skin. But we don't think it's shabby, you know, we just see it what it is. So hopefully when you, well, we do have mirrors here. I like going into the wilderness without mirrors. I think that's a very liberating experience. So don't look in the mirrors very too much. Um, but it can be refreshing to, 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 to bring that same attitude to look in the mirror at oneself or one's body, that we usually have so many views and ideas and judgments and shame about. So I have a student who... Um, she lives in Berkeley, and 
she uh, she told me this story. She's a big nature lover, and she tells this story of how she watches the squirrels in her backyard fatten up in the winter and then shed their weight in spring, you know, as many animals do, fatten up in the fall with the abundance of food to survive the, the more uh, you know, dormant months and then burn it off in spring. And she realized that, the, you know, she was noticing that she did the same. You know, she, you know, more sedentary, you know, more indoors, eating more foods in winter. And then as she got more active in spring, she would shed that weight. And she had no judgment for the squirrels. But you can imagine she had a few thoughts about her own body size. It's interesting how we apply different standards, but often in nature we don't apply that same judging mind. So what else do we contact when we are immersed in outdoors, immersed in the wilderness? So another thing that I think we, you know, all these things are really things I spoke about in the first night about how Nature reveals the truth, <coughs> reveals the Dharma, reveals so many of the wisdom teachings that wisdom traditions point to. So one of the things that tradition points to is our interconnected, interdependent nature. Not just a nice idea, but it's a living reality but we often approach that with a conceptual understanding. But again, when we're outside, we see the interrelatedness of life. We see how intimately dependent and affected we are by our environment. Now we see a curved row of colors in the sky and we all feel delight. Or we hear the sound of birds in meditation and, and there's a sweetness. And just think of all the ways that you are continually touched and moved by all the various things in the landscape, the light, the sound, the air. Right? And we have this funny experience of human, as humans as, you know, we think, we, we because we're so sort of, convinced that this, this skin-bound being is all we are. And we move through landscapes and environments with the idea that we're moving through untouched by it. There's me, and I go to Vicedos, and I leave, and never the twain shall meet. We don't think that consciously, but that's kind of how we move often. We go for a walk in the woods. That's why I read that poem by David Wagoner about being lost. To explore that sense of being in relationship. That as we walk in the woods, we are the woods walking through the woods. We're not just some separate thing that visits. On one level we are, another level we're not. Some of your skin is draped in the woods as it is draped in this room. You know, 80% of household dust is you. <laughs> Your skin. You know, we shed and pounds of it every week, I think. It's like messy. <laughs> but, you know, we come to this land, for instance, and this is one of my favorite metaphors, or not, and we come here for a week and we drink from the spring, which is just beyond the middle house. That's the, where the spring, the, there's many springs, but that's this one we draw from. And so after these many, many days, right, even today, what's the day, third day in, right, we're drinking this lovely mountain, New Mexico, Carson Forest spring water from our bottles and taps and whatever. Right? And that, that spring water becomes us. Right? We become the mountain spring. 
We are the mountain spring walking on the land. And after a week, we are more mountain spring than anything else. That's not just a nice idea. It's true. You drink it. It doesn't just get pissed out. It actually becomes (laughs) part of your cells and blood and tears and organs and tissue. Right? It's real. Right? We're becoming, we are, you know, skin-bound ocean and rain and clouds and, and, and streams. So when you leave and you carry Vaisitos with you, you literally carry Vaisitos <laughs> with you, at least for a while. <laughs> yeah. So next time you drink your water, like, just take that in. Are you, this, is, this is you becoming part of the mountain. In the same way, wherever you live, you become part of that ecosystem, right? wherever you draw your water from. You know, you live in San Francisco, you're, you mostly Sierra Nevada's, you know, runoff, snowmelt. It's a beautiful thing. Snowman. <laughs> Tiknat Han says, when we see the moon, the moon is in us because it is inside our perception. When we smile at a friend, the friend is also us, because they are inside our awareness. The idea that our consciousness is outside the flower has to be questioned. And so as we're taking in this landscape, in awareness, right? everything is within awareness, not separate, not different. We enter are, as he says. We interbe. And these things are subtle, right? They don't they don't and often don't make sense to the ordinary thinking mind. Right? But when we get quiet, which is why this integration of meditation, of silence, of slowing down, right? over time we get little intimations of that. And maybe you're doing a standing meditation by a tree. And you feel some resonance. Or you're lying on the earth and you realize, oh, I'm actually the earth's surface. We are the earth's surface. We tend to think of ourselves as walking on the earth. (laughs) That we're not earth. We are earth. We just came out of it. Gravity keeps us here. We have this mobility but we're the Earth's moving surface. I find when I think of myself like, think, and think of that, it, I have a different relationship to experience. We're not as separate as we think we are. One of the... I think richest and beautiful things that we can explore in nature, as we can anywhere, but it, for me it's more evident in nature, is the, and I've been speaking to it a little bit, is the understanding of the sense of self. And, and to have an intimation and direct experience at times of uh, the sense of self not quite being what we took it to be or what we thought it is or was. And mostly we, we have a very fixed view about who we are, our name, our image, our identity, our history, our personality. This is me and... I'm different than you, and like it or lump it. And, you know, when we spend time outdoors, whether we begin to feel that sense of permeability 
in our boundary. Sometimes when we're in meditation, we're sitting outside, eyes are closed, and you can feel this inside too, but you begin to feel the boundary, the, the skin boundary, you see that that's just one, that that boundary isn't necessarily as real as it seems. That when we close our eyes, you can do it right now, as you close your eyes, right, there's no head, there's no legs, there's no arms, there's no torso, there's just there's awareness, there's sounds, there's the light in the eyes, there's sensations appearing in that space of awareness that we call the body, but when we feel, say, the weight of the body on the chair, the concept leg is a concept. We experience it as just sensation, appearing in this, 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 this black space. So when we you can open your eyes. When we hear a bird sound in that space, it, the, the sound, the vibration can sometimes feel like it just penetrates right through, which of course it does. Or at times, and this happens more when we're alone, not when we're hiking with 553 people, as we've been doing here, um, <laughs> trying to feel the space. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of space here. Um, you're doing wonderfully, by the way. appreciate your patience with the, these long chains of human <laughs> beings. Um, what was I saying? <laughs> Something about space. You're alone. Self. What? Something about you being alone. Something about being alone, yes, thank alone. you. Yes, so when you're alone, there's rare moments here when you're alone, <laughs> and you escape, and uh, we can, that can happen with a group, but also more so alone, and, and there's that. Like, you know, what I experience is the self-forgetting. You know, you're sitting on a rock, you're lying on the grass, you're, you know, leaning up against a tree, as many of you have been doing this week, and you're just quiet, sitting, minding your own business. Your eyes are closed or open, doesn't matter. And, and you just, and that the, the worries, the mind, the mind quietens in those lovely, rare moments. And you're just sitting, breathing, feeling, Hearing, seeing, nothing much going on, and you get quiet. And in that quiet, at, at times, the sense of self, which generally feels so rigid and tight and constructed and real, starts to, it sort of loses its sense of importance. We become self forgetful, just like that in that reading of, from the you people's. Earth teach me to remember to forget myself as melted snow forgets its ice. Sometimes when we're just sitting quietly in the grass, in the meadow, in the woods, we forget ourselves. It's delightful moments of self-forgetting. We forget about our worries, our problems, our bank balance, our relationship, or whatever. And we just, it's just quiet, simple, ordinary presence. And at times in those moments, we feel the sense of self completely dissolving and disappearing. Nobody home. Nobody there. So we can experience it either as an absence, which feels very light and freeing, or sometimes we feel it as a fullness where we feel so uh, empty of self that all there is is what's all around us, which is fullness, which is life, which is whatever's here, tree, grasses, meadow, sky, clouds. And the sense of self expands and includes all of that. 
such a sense of nobody, home of emptiness, there's a, there's a vastness, there's a fullness. And uh, those moments are moments that profoundly touch us, profoundly inform our understanding about who we are. And you may not necessarily relate to these words that I'm saying, because these are concepts I'm pointing to an experience that many of you, I'm sure, have had quite naturally and organically, just sitting in your garden, just lying at the beach, walking these trails. And then you hear the, the sound of the bell for the meditation, and whoop! Back comes the personality. Oh, shit, I'm going to be late. What are they going to think? I was late last time. Oh, my God, this is terrible. I'm so far off. Why, why do I never get my schedule together? Oh, my God, I'm going to lose it. And the self comes back, right, like a whacking great elastic band. Right? And I was having various conversations in the groups today about the various ways the sense of self dissolves or expands and moves into these more expansive qualities, vast and beautiful and spacious, and sometimes can feel quite scary, and and then the the egoic self feels like it's going to disappear and become a blob and just dissolve forever. And I mostly say, don't worry, it's going to come back just like that. (laughs) And as my first Vipassana teacher said, freedom allows self to be and not to be. Freedom allows self to be and not to be. Which means we don't make a problem out of either position on the spectrum. At times self dissolves, there's a sense of freedom and ease or love. And at times our self is very intact and and tight and contracted or it's in busy doing mode. And that freedom allows for that also. And we just know, we just be mindful that the sense of self that we take to be so solid and real, real and fixed and substantial actually is very ephemeral. It changes. It's loose. It's always ebbing and flowing. You wake up in the morning, so tomorrow when you wake up, especially if you wake up without being woken up, because that quickly jolts something into being, um, like, oh, no, um, but um, if you wake up naturally, often we, you know, it's like, uh, we, don't, we, haven't, we don't quite know where we are. Uh, it's kind of that kind of foggy, pleasant, sleepy, before the self has coalesced. And it's actually very sweet. The reason why we love sleep so much is, is we get a rest from the ego, and from all the doing except in our dreams, and it does, does its thing. You know, so we're lying there quite peaceful, not quite knowing you know, that the busy mind hasn't got activated. And then suddenly, at some point, it does. And it's like, oh, 5.45, got to get to the set, get dressed. And the whole self and the whole world and of, of, of self coalesces. And we see that constriction from that, you know, which is why there's such a importance around relaxation because it's the relaxation that's constantly um, encouraging that fixation, that put-togetherness to relax. That's the the, the put-togetherness that's driven by fear, uh, identity, and all the other things that drive us. Can we relax? Notice the tightness, relax. You lie, you know, and so, so, so pay attention this week to the ebb and flow of the sense of self. And the sense of self is like an accordion. Right? It's not... We think it's just the steady thing. It's not. It's always moving. And of course, we like this expansive, dissolved, empty, open places. Don't so much like the constricted, contracted, reactive places. And hopefully over time our practice is one where that the access to the ease, spacious, open, empty places is much more available, <clears throat> which it can be with practice and insight.
So the poem, <coughs> my favorite nature poem, I would say, or one of, um, by Li Po, who's a eighth-century Chinese Chan poet, goes: "The birds have vanished into the sky, and the last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains." So, so put yourself back up on the crags, whichever crags you were today, yesterday. The birds have vanished into the sky. The last remaining clouds have faded away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. Or we sit together, the tree and me, until only the tree remains. Or we sit together, the river and me, until only the river remains. Or we sit together, you and me, until only you remain. So, we partly practice to touch and experience and know these these possibilities of experience, these dimensions of of our being. And I think for myself, the reason I so love being out in nature and practicing in nature is for this reason, that for, you know, having done a lot of practice and a lot of nature practice, that it's, it's, it can be just moments of contact for that sense of self to completely dissolve. And it's just presence, it's just ease. Just delight, some quietness, simplicity. And then out of that, you know, that informs a certain way of being in the world. So to some that all of that might not sound that appealing. I dissolve, I get empty, and <laughs> nobody home. <laughs> but what arises out of that, when, when we're a little more free of the, the, all the habitual, egoic, reactive tendencies and mental habits, when we get quiet and more spacious, what comes forth more easily is the heart. And the heart easily gets obscured when we're so busily wrapped up in ourselves and our thoughts and our worries and our judgments and our dramas and all of that. When that begins to quiet at times, then my experience allows space for the heart and the love to be more fully present and accessible. So in in that softening emptying out of selfing, self-referencing, self-obsessing, we we find there's more intimacy in that beautiful teaching from Dogen to study the self, to to know the ways to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self (coughs) is to be illuminated by all things. It's an intimacy with all things. When, when, when there's not the sense of me and being all puffed up and doing my thing and I'm just being nobody going nowhere, then we have more intimate connection with life all around us, with the air and the trees and the grasses and the quality of energy. And, and for me, what arises in that is love. Like, how can I not love everything in that place? Partly because there's an understanding, it's not separate, it's not different. So again, also as you, as you hear these next few days, notice the quality of your heart. 
notice um, how the heart moves in relationship to this environment you're in. Notice when you're feeling love as the hummingbird fleetingly visits you and flaps its dazzling crimson throat. Or whatever it is that's tickling you. Just attune to the heart and see how the heart is moving and responding to this, this place, this experience of life pulsing, teeming. You know, what arises out of the quietness when the selfing quietens is a care, it's a responsiveness. It's feeling the, the, fra- the, the, the fragility and the preciousness of life. And when we're not so wrapped up in ourselves, we can actually take in each other and the world. And what arises out of that is reverence is wanting to bow down, as Rumi says, to everything. Is is to be humbled. So I share these reflections as, as invitations to, to look and to see where you're being touched, to see what wisdom or insight can arise in this space, in this context, to see how the sense of self can expand or change or dissolve, to see how the heart can move and, and blossom in this, in this environment. So let's just sit for a few moments, just let the words settle. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.